So, final two topics we want to look at today, and they're both big ones. Final judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. So let me dive right in. I'm going to do quite a bit of reading. Hopefully you can follow along on the screen. And I trust that it makes sense. So Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15, it says, Then I saw... Right at the end of this millennium, we looked at last week, thousand years of Jesus' reign here on earth. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm going to try and simplify it because my mind needs kind of to break things down. And I've just jotted down eight questions about judgment. And what I'm trying to do is not just look at this passage in Revelation, but then try and link it from Revelation to all the other passages that speak about judgment so that we can try and understand. This is not a topic we preach about often. It's not an easy topic to speak about, but it's a biblical topic and it's one that we need to understand. Question number one, is judgment real? Because it's not really something that's kind of politically correct or nice to talk about. Don't you die and go to heaven. No, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. And if the Bible speaks about this thing called judgment, we need to understand it so that we're ready for it. A coming judgment is taught throughout Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Jesus spoke of a judgment day. Matthew 10, 15. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that every, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Paul the Apostle, when he spoke to the churches, he reminded the churches that there is a judgment day coming. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The writer of Hebrews, we don't exactly know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but he understood even for young Christians, part of their foundation should be an understanding of future judgment and heaven. It says in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, let us leave, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternity. Eternal judgment. Every believer, young and old, new to the faith, should have a foundation understanding of what judgment means. Jude, as he wrote to the church to encourage them, said in Jude 1 verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. 
Even the Old Testament writers, just one example from the book of Daniel 12 and verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. What's the bottom line? Friends, there is a final judgment. No matter what the world says and what what popular opinion says, the Bible is clear. There is a great day of judgment that we all will stand before. So who judges us? Well, in Revelation 20, we just read in verse number 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who judges us? Well, Jesus Christ is the judge. The Father in heaven has given Jesus the job of judging. Just as he came the first time to be savior of the world, he comes the second time as Lord and King and judge. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the man appointed to judge. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Savior. And Jesus is our judge. Question three, when when exactly Will final judgment happen? Do we get judged straight away when we die? How how does it work? Well, Revelation 20 verse 13, we read, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. This takes place at the end of what we looked at last week called that millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, however that's going to look. And then there comes a specific moment in history when all who are dead are raised. Every single human being and it seems the angels come before the throne of God. We've seen all of Jesus' enemies fall one by one and now the final judgment. In John 5, 28 and 29, do not be amazed at this, Jesus said, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be Condemned. The final judgment is the final scene on the old planet Earth. So now let's get to some bigger questions. Question number four, who's judged? Is everyone judged? Christians, are we judged? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, it said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Acts 24 verse 15, And I have come, and I have that same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. We know reading the book of Revelation that Satan is judged. Unbelievers will be judged. But the reality is believers are judged as well. In Romans 14 verses 10 to 12, it says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. But what's the difference? The difference is, if you're an unbeliever, this is the most terrifying day ever. 
For believers, I want us to be ready with the assurance. You see, what we learned, remember, uh, when we, we looked at the return of Jesus, it said those who were dead in Christ, who were asleep in Christ, remember, soul and spirit were ready with Jesus in heaven, and they were reunited at a resurrection, the first resurrection. Bodies are resurrected, and we have joined with our soul and our spirit. That was called the first resurrection. Let me read it to you from Revelation 25 and 6. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That's exactly what we're reading about now. This is the first resurrection. And he spoke about his return. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. In other words, when Christ returns before the millennium, those in Christ who have a relationship with God, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, are united with Christ for that thousand years. And it says the second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Wayne Grudem from uh, his uh, theology book said this. It's important to realize that this judgment of believers will be a judgment to evaluate and bestow various degrees of reward. But the fact that they will face such a judgment should never cause believers to fear that they will be eternally condemned. Remember what Jesus said in John 5 verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. What do we need to understand, church? Yes, there will be a judgment day. And yes, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. But on that day to remember this, we will be judged according to our actions and we'll look at that in a moment. But if our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the judgment for our sin, the judgment that leads to death has already taken place on the cross carried by Jesus himself. Which leads me to question number five. How are we judged Revelation 20 verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Do you know there's a book in heaven with your name on it? Some of you might have a bigger book than others. Because you're older, not because you've sinned more. Yeah, what are you thinking? Fortunately, there's one extra book which has got the name of Jesus on it. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. A record of all that we've done, good or bad. Can you imagine God going through the pages in your book? I'm trusting, my Bible tells me that um, He will remember my sins no more. So I'm trusting and write all of mine down in the book. I'm hoping to have quite a small book, maybe. <laughs> Interesting, though, it's not just our actions, but special mention is made of our words as well. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's speak carefully. If this was all the evidence to be considered, it would damn us all to the second death. What hope would there be for any? Thank God, one other book will be opened on that terrible day. 
It's the record of the judge's own life on earth, both absolving him and qualifying him to judge others. It's the Lamb's book of life. None of us would be declared righteous if not for the blood of Jesus. And it's so important to remember, we think, well, maybe in this book, if there's two columns, debtors and creditors, I mean, is it as long as my good outweighs my bad? No. If there's anything in the bad column, just one line, one entry is enough because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, said Romans 6 verse 23. Revelations 21 verse 27 said, Nothing impure will ever enter, speaking of heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We have to understand church. Judgment for a believer, the way we get through judgment is never going to be based on the goodness of our lives, but rather the record of our name in the Lamb's book of life. Acts 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, including yourself. Salvation is found in no one else. In other words, you cannot save yourself. To come to that final day of judgment, trusting, well, surely I'm going to represent myself. I'm not going to get a lawyer. I'm going to defend myself before God. I labored. I tried my best. I lived a good life. Is not enough. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life will survive the final judgment. Which leads me to the worst question, number six. What is hell like? Is it real? Revelation 21 verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, most people don't believe in a literal hell. I mean, surely it's symbolic. Surely it's meta kind of physical. Surely it's just some kind of... No, the Bible's quite clear. But then how could a loving God condemn people to hell? Actually, He doesn't. Hell was created. We see in a moment, it was created... For Satan and for his angels who rebelled. It was never created for humans, except if they willfully chose to follow after the enemy and reject what Jesus has done for them. God has in fact paid the ultimate price to keep people from hell. And just as the first death separates you from a physical life, second death separates you from the source of life for eternity. Now, many people don't believe, surely, ah, hell can't be real. Well, Jesus believed that it was real. In Matthew 13, 49 and 15, Jesus says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. That's a pretty clear statement. In other words, Jesus, let's, 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 let's be clear. Well, Jesus said, this is how it'll be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sadly, that's pretty clear. Matthew 10 verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now there's a lot more that we could say about it, but the reality is I think that's enough to realize hell is real, judgment is real, which means readiness, understanding what a final judgment looks like is crucial 
for all of us as believers. Hell is eternal separation from God, described as a lake of burning fire. So question seven then is, well, how should that impact us now? As believers, as followers of Christ, how are we ready? Well, Peter asked this exact question and then he answered it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 10, it said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So when we have an understanding of actually God will come and we will stand before His judgment one day, nope, our lives can never qualify us for salvation, but our faithfulness to Him qualifies us for greater reward. And Peter said, how then should we live? We should live with the sense of, of one day my life like an open book will be before the Lord. Let's live holy and godly lives. It's not our holiness that will save us. It's lives lived for His glory that will reward us. We saved by faith and we're rewarded for faithfulness. So number one, we live ready, knowing there's a judgment. Let's live lives separated unto the Lord, making every moment count. But number two, how then should we live? It should inspire an urgency in us to preach the gospel because everyone faces a judgment one day. I'm simply going to read to you a well-known story. Many of you would have heard this quote. But it's the story of a man named Charles Pierce who died on 25th of February, 1879. He was an English burglar and murderer who embarked on a life of crime after being maimed in an industrial accident as a boy. After killing a policeman in Manchester, he fled to his native Sheffield, where he became obsessed with his neighbor's wife, eventually fatally shooting her husband. Settling in London, he, married out, he carried out multiple burglaries before being caught in the prosperous suburb of Blackheath. Wounding the policeman who arrested him, he was linked to the Sheffield murder and tried at Leeds. Found guilty, he was hanged at Armley Prison. As he was being escorted on the death walk by the prison chaplain, who was reading aloud from the consolations of religion about the fires of hell, Pierce burst out, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. It's quite a story, isn't it? It's quite a quote. Do we believe what our Bible says? Because if we do, it should put something inside of us. Dear God, we don't want anyone. The reality of judgment should inspire us to live lives devoted to God and do all we can to warn others. What then is the final outcome of judgment? Number eight, the human race will then be permanently divided into two groups. For one, 
Their destination has already been prepared. Matthew 25 verse 41, Jesus said, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But for the other, a new metropolis has been prepared. John 14, 2 and 3, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. But there's no earth on which it may be started, much less a sky above. A new universe is needed. The final judgment results in a separation of humanity and the introduction of eternity. Yikes. Never preached about eternal judgment before. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? We need to know these things, church. The Bible speaks about it. Jesus, I was amazed, spoke about judgment often. It's something we need to know, understand, and be prepared for. But let me finish then by coming to our final topic. The new heaven and the new earth. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new, I like this word new. Apparently there's two Greek words for new. One means chronological. That's the old one. Now this is a newer word. New also can mean a new model, a new prototype, something never seen before. That's the word that's used here. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Sorry, fishermen. You might as well get, no. <laughs> Might not be a sea. Some, one commentator said it like this, because where the river of life flowed, there is no salted sea anymore. Doesn't mean to say there won't be large bodies of water. So fishermen, you might still be fishing in heaven, just not in the sea, maybe in huge lakes. Who knows? Verse number two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In verse number nine, it says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so the end of Revelation 21 and 22 introduces us to this brand new city of Jerusalem, the people of God, and to a brand new Garden of Eden. Let's look at the city for a moment. In Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, the writer in the Hebrews said, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Even the writer in Hebrew was looking forward to this glorious day as the people of God are revealed. Someone said it like this, the measurements are clearly important, all multiples of 12. The size of this new Jerusalem, how big is this city? 
The size is enormous, over 2,000 kilometers in each of three dimensions. The city would cover most of Europe or just fit into the moon if it were hollow. In other words, big enough to accommodate all God's people. The shape is also significant, more like a cube than a pyramid indicating a holy city, like the cubed holy of holies and tabernacle and temple. The walls define the outside rather than defend the inside since the gates are always open. There's no threatened danger so its inhabitants can freely leave and return at any time. The materials used in its construction are already known to us, but only as rare and precious gemstones, which give us a tiny glimpse of heaven. What do we know about this glorious new home? Just enough to make us excited, but not enough to give away the surprise. We do know that it's massive. 2,000 kilometers by 2,000 kilometers by 2,000 kilometers. Talk about a high rise. Some of you might be living on floor 8,427 with super fast lifts, hopefully. It's massive. Secondly, it's beautiful. Revelation 21, 21 said the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate made of a single pearl. The great streets of the city were of gold as pure as transparent glass. It's going to be spectacular. It's not just beautiful, but glorious. Revelation 21, 22 to 27 said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. No more load shedding. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And not just beautiful, not just massive, not just glorious, but it is holy. Revelation 21, 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, but there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My little idle speculation is I'm a believer that God created this earth in six days. I don't know how long the days were because the sun hadn't been invented for the first three, but I know that God created in six days this. And then Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that was 2,000 years ago. So if what we see here is six days of God's handiwork, imagine 2,000 plus years of God's handiwork. Anyway, that's my idle dream. It's going to be indescribably epic. Let me land with just a quick glimpse of the garden because it all started in Genesis with a garden and it finishes one right in the middle of this spectacular city in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree of the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will need, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The source of the living water is God himself. I don't really know why they need healing because I don't think our glorious bodies are able to get sick. So it's probably not a physical thing. But it says in Psalm 46, 4 and 5, 
It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. What can we conclude about this new heaven, this new earth, this city, this beautiful garden? Here's the biggest conclusion. The highlight is not the city and the highlight is not the garden. In Revelation 21 verse 3, it said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The most glorious thing about the new heaven and the new earth is that God himself changes residence. God will dwell among us. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, he said, no one comes not to heaven, but to the Father except by me. The highlight of heaven is not a glorious city or a magnificent garden. The highlight of heaven is unending direct access to our heavenly Father. No longer will we pray our Father in heaven, but rather our Father on the new earth with us. Glorious, uninterrupted fellowship with God. We saw a glimpse of it when he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve back in Genesis. Now it's permanent. No more tears, no more sadness, just glorious fellowship with God. And so let me end. The world is coming to an end, but that end is personal rather than impersonal. In fact, the end is a person. Jesus is the end. To study Revelation primarily to discover what the world is coming to is to miss the point. The essential message is about who the world is coming to, or rather, who is coming to the world. This book of Revelation has taught us the completion of the Bible, how the story of God ends. It's taught us a defense against heresy as we hear speculation and theories everywhere. It's given us an interpretation of history. Where does it all end? It's given us a ground for hope, a motivation for evangelism, a stimulus to worship, an antidote to worldliness, an incentive to godliness, a preparation for persecution, and an understanding of Christ. And so let me finish with the last verses in Revelation 22, 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Why don't you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this amazing, glorious book of how things conclude in your story, thank you, Heavenly Father, that it says, and then Jesus, once every knee has bowed, once everything is brought to its conclusion, it says Jesus hands over the kingdom to his Father. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that it all started with you. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that it all ends with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you're our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, that you're our Lord and conquering King. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the righteous judge. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who brings us to the Father and gives us access to the Father. 
Thank you, Jesus. I pray, Lord God, as we've come to the end of this, of this study together, that we would be a people prepared. That we would be a people who know that heaven is ready, that Jesus is ready. Father, I pray for Outlook Church and I pray for your church in this city and this nation. Pray for the church and the nations of the world. Father, I pray that the church would be ready. We saw when COVID came, so many churches closed because they weren't ready. Father, we want to be a people, not built on comfort and convenience. We want to be a people built on a faith in Christ that is unshakable. Father, maybe we, may we be ready for shaking. Whether the shaking comes to fears of the future, economic collapses, persecution, whatever form or shape they come, Thank you, Jesus, that you are the rock on which we build. And Father, I pray for every single one of us that we would be ready because we've now, while it's the easy time, while we're in the safe country, we've put down deep foundational roots into Christ. Our lives are not half built on Jesus, but mostly built on the world and money. No, we built on Christ alone. Jesus, thank you that you have written our names in your book of life. And that's the most important issue there is. And friends, if you're here this morning, I want you to know, Christ wants you to know by the power of the Holy Spirit with a deep peace and assurance in your heart that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you're still doubting because you've never come to a conscious decision of being fully surrendered to Christ. You've got to make the step. You've got to make the decision. We're born under lordship and we serve sin and we serve ourselves and live selfish lives. At some point, we've got to turn over responsibility of our lives to Jesus as king. You can't be king and Jesus is your king at the same time. It's one or the other. And if you're here today, friends, and you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your King, your Lord. You've surrendered your all, baptized into Christ, saying I'm completely in, married to Jesus, one, one in spirit. Then the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Please don't miss this opportunity. Even as we've had to speak about difficult things like judgment. Oh, may we stand before the throne one day and be richly rewarded for faithfulness. Father God, I pray that if there's anyone here in the building or listening online who's never accepted Jesus Christ, then right now, right now, in your heart, right now, you'd be saying, Lord Jesus, be my Lord. Jesus, I confess you as Lord of my life. I'm bowing my knee now. I don't want to be forced to bow my knee one day before the lake of fire. I'm choosing to bow my knee now. Jesus Christ, you are my Lord and King. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you, Jesus, that you've loved us so much. Thank you that you prepare us for the future. Thank you that your gracious hand is upon us. Thank you for the generosity and fruitfulness and favor of your people. Bless them, Lord. Bless them and help us, Lord God to be a blessing to the nations in Jesus' name.